Father, come among your people and speak, we pray, through the preaching of your word. May whatever words that I have prepared, may they be the words, your words, for your people this morning. I pray that by your spirit, they will take root in our hearts and produce fruit for your kingdom uh, in this world and treasures laid up for us to take hold of life eternal. And so we commend ourselves to your loving care. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you would, turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, our Old Testament lesson this morning. Joshua chapter 2. This morning we're beginning a, a small four-part series on ooh, money, radical generosity, and tithing. So if I don't see you all in the coming weeks, well, you, you've been forewarned and we'll know why. No, but we're going to be getting this four-part series. Next week, we'll take a week off and then pick it back up for the next three weeks after our bishop's visit next week. So why are we doing this series? Well, for one, the scriptures warn us over and over again that money presents one of the most profound dangers to the people of God. In fact, when Jesus warns us that it's impossible to serve two masters, what is that second master that he elevates alongside Jesus? It's money, it's mammon, it's money and possessions. So we need to return often to the scriptures and what it says about money and how we are to relate to it as members of God's household, his kingdom. And so naturally, we begin in Joshua chapter 2, or maybe not so naturally. So let me read that passage for you this morning. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, or Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men you have, that have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land." But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had actually brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in, in, in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, these are the spies, she came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord, Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, Yahweh, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign 
that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver, deliver our lives from death. This may seem like a strange passage to begin a series on money, radical generosity, and tithing, but if you'll bear with me, I think it'll make sense in just a moment. Here in that passage from Joshua chapter 2, we meet Rahab, a prostitute. And she lived in Jericho, which was a powerful and wealthy walled city. A walled city. And one day, Rahab encounters some Israelite spies who were the enemy of her people. And as we heard, she does a very peculiar thing. She hides these spies and lies to her king when questioned about them. Why? Why would she betray her people? Why would she betray her kingdom by hiding these spies? Well, we overhear the answer there in verse 8 and following when she says to those spies, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, this land, our land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. For we have heard that Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did through Yahweh to the two kings of the Amorites. As soon as we heard all this, our hearts melted for we Know that Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Well, this is an odd place to begin such a series on money. This is an odd, peculiar thing that Rahab has done. So to make sense of this, we have to recognize that Rahab lived in a kingdom. And like all kingdoms, Jericho had its own king and its own rules, its own economic policies about what we do with money, what it is for, and it had its own social arrangements and even its own gods. And Rahab's entire life up until this moment had been shaped by this kingdom. Yet if her job as a prostitute is any indication, the kingdom of Jericho had not been good to her or for her. Then one day, you can imagine... She's been pushed to the, mar- I, mean, I love the way the text has this. She's been pushed to the margins of her society, so much so she's not at the center of the life of Jericho. She's as, about as far as you can go. Her home is on the city walls. She's at the outskirts. And from her vantage point, pushed to the margins, Rahab can look out her window and see another kingdom coming. She can see Yahweh coming, the kingdom of these slaves former slaves who have been transformed into royal priests. And she looks at this distant horizon and she sees this kingdom with another king, with a different economic policy, with other sorts of social arrangements. And even if she can believe it, a God so powerful, so powerful that he can overthrow the most strong, powerful nation in all the world at that time, the Egyptians. So Rahab sees this, and she has a decision to make. Whose side am I on? Whose kingdom will I give my allegiance? Will I keep my allegiance to this wealthy kingdom that I know, or will I switch my allegiance to Yahweh and his coming kingdom that I see through my window off in the horizon? And as strange as it may sound, Rahab reveals to us the most important starting place for thinking about money. That is to recognize, to recognize that at bottom, foundationally, that we need to be thinking about kingdoms when we think about money. 
kingdoms. And interestingly, this is exactly the context that precedes Paul and his statements to the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there next. Now, I know that many of us have watched with a measure of grief and some fascination at all the pageantry uh, and royal display that we have seen surrounding Queen Elizabeth's death. Such royal displays and pageantry are largely unknown to us and they're foreign to us in our world. However, this was not the case in the first century world, especially not in a significant economic and political center like Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia and one of the largest cities in the empire. I think at some point in the first century, boasting a, a population of 250,000 people. I mean, it's significant for an ancient city. It enjoyed significant prosperity due to its strategic location and thriving industries of banking and commerce. Strabo, the ancient geographer of the first century, identifies this city as the royal seat of the Ionians. And the city boasted of a significant altar honoring Caesar Augustus. Worship, worship of the Roman emperors, the kings of the Roman Empire, was present in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And when in verse 14 of chapter 6, he refers to the appearing, the epiphany of our Lord King Jesus, he is using language that his hearers, his hearers would have known and recognized as normally reserved for Caesar the Roman emperor, and they would have known just how subversive this really was, this language that Paul keeps using throughout the letter of God as king of kings and lord of lords. And Paul hammers this home line after line to Timothy and to the Ephesian church and to us, and this is what he's hammering home. When you follow King Jesus, when you follow King Jesus, you are enlisting enlisting in the service of the one true God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ultimate and supreme sovereign to whom every king will bow. Even Caesar, even our presidents, even ourselves. So often we see ourselves as the king over our own lives. When you follow King Jesus, you are enlisting in the service of one true of the one true God, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Paul is saying that the appearance, the epiphany of King Jesus, not Caesar, is the only royal appearance that really matters. And for Paul, it matters so much that it is to reorient and reorder our lives, to utterly transform them and redirect them to his purposes according to his economic policies, according to his social arrangements, according to his rules and power. And so for Paul, the gospel itself and daily Christian living boils down to the choice that Rahab faced. Whose side am I on? Whose kingdom will I serve? Whom will I give my allegiance to? Will I serve King Jesus or will I serve Caesar? And this is the foundational question, our starting place for thinking about money and economics, because nobody can serve, nobody can give their ultimate allegiance to more than one king. And again, Jesus tells us this much in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve 
two masters. And really nothing has changed since the time of Paul or Rahab. And for us, each one of us today is in fact a bit like Rahab. We live in one kingdom, a kingdom of this world. And then when we look out the window, we see the coming royal appearance of Jesus that Paul is directing our gaze towards. And we see his kingdom headed our way. And we're confronted with the same question that Rahab and Timothy and the Ephesian church was confronted with, faced with. Whose side am I on? The side of King Jesus or Caesar? And from our standpoint, Jesus has already invaded our earthly kingdoms through his incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. And we are awaiting his return, his royal appearance when he appears in the sky. And Jesus does not come. He did not come in his first coming. He does not come in his second coming to, to merely obliterate the kingdoms of our world. He comes to conquer them and reclaim them as his own. As Paul reminds us in Colossians, every throne and dominion, ruler and authority on earth and in heaven was created by him and for him. They are his. And one of the visions we see at the end of Revelation is the kings of all the earth bringing their splendor as tribute into the new creation kingdom of Jesus, of God his Father. And as a result, our role isn't simply to accept King Jesus and then abandon our present communities. Right? Because God is conquering them and reclaiming them for his own. He seeks for them to be transformed into the kingdom of heaven. Our role then is to swear allegiance to King Jesus and become as members of Christ's church, this particular gathering of the body of Christ, an outpost of God's kingdom right here in the middle of Winston-Salem, firmly rooted in a kingdom of this present evil age. And as an outpost of God's kingdom, we are to declare in our words, in our actions, and in our shared life together that there is another king on the throne of this world and that his royal appearance is coming and that has consequences. Consequences, real world consequences in our community, in our lives, in this church. And when he appears, he will reclaim what rightfully belongs to him. Every square inch of planet Earth and every square inch of human life, including our economic lives, what we do with money, what we think it's for, how we relate to it. So Christ Church. This means that as followers of King Jesus, followers of King Jesus living in an earthly kingdom, and the United States is an earthly kingdom of this present evil age, this means that this earthly kingdom cannot and should not claim our primary and ultimate allegiance. It cannot and should not define for us what money is for, and what we are to do with it, because such kingdoms set their hope on what Paul calls in verse 17, the uncertainty of riches. The uncertainty of riches. And for Paul, riches are uncertain because they are of this age. They're products of this age, which is passing away. They do not last, nor do they endure into the age to come. And that's why he says you can use this stuff 
to build for yourself a better foundation, a lasting foundation. And that's why he encourages there in verse 19, take hold of what is truly life. Be loose with the stuff of this present age so that you might firmly take hold of what is truly life. In God's kingdom that is coming, it's invading our world as we speak. This is why Paul reminds us in verse 7 that you cannot, the uncertainty of riches, you cannot take your wealth with you when you die. He reminds us that. Verse 7, you can just glance over and see that. Nor can you ensure that your wealth will not slip away sooner while you still live. In a world increasingly dominated by money, it seems almost indecent to mention it, but the scriptures, the scriptures are so severely practical that they remind us of facts our culture would like us to forget. Namely, that money comes and goes, but God does not. He endures. He lasts. He persists, even when we might not like it, right? And Paul challenges us not to give our allegiance to this fallen human kingdoms, to the fallen human kingdoms and their economic worldviews, which set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Rather, he directs us, like Rahab, to give our ultimate allegiance to God, to look out the window and see that there is another kingdom coming, that Jesus' royal appearance is on the horizon, that he will reveal himself one day to be the universal Lord. So he directs us to give our ultimate allegiance to God, to King Jesus and his inbreaking kingdom, because this triune God, what does he say there? How has he defined his character? Richly provides everything for us to enjoy. He's not stingy. He's not stingy. He provides everything for us to enjoy. And the word for enjoyment here is such a strong word. It almost means sensual pleasure. It's actually used to refer to the sensual pleasure brought on by sin in, some, in other contexts. So this is, this is promiscuous generosity. God wants you to enjoy life. He gives you good gifts to be enjoyed. So whether he provides us with little or with much, we are to receive it with joy. This, this profound depth of joy that comes only when we can commit our lives to the creator of all things who is defined as the great gift giver. Because as it, from Genesis on, all of life is told to us, is revealed to us to be gift. As soon as he makes Adam and Eve in the garden, what does he do? What's his first act towards them? I give you the whole world to eat, to enjoy. I mean, and it's just ridiculous. In chapter 2, God, he makes man to solve a problem. There is none of these Few things on the ground, the, the cultivated grains are not on the ground because there's no water and there's no man. And when he makes water and he brings the man about, but he doesn't place him on the ground. In an act of unexpected blessing, promiscuous blessing and generosity, God creates a garden that every ancient Near Eastern farmer knew meant whew, nice labor, 
compared to like trying to till up this rocky soil in my farm, a garden that's already made, already flourishing, already producing bumper crops. This is perfect work. Abundant blessing. Abundant blessing. This is the God that Paul says you can put your hope, you can set your hope upon him. And that has radical consequences. It reorients and redirects and reorders our lives and especially the way we view money. Because that commitment, that allegiance to this God sets us firmly within his kingdom and it then subtly begins to alienate ourselves from our own kingdom, at least from its views. So whether he provides us little or much, we are to receive it with joy. So when we submit our lives to God as the good giver of everything that we have, then we open ourselves up to true and lasting joy. Joy marked by profound contentment. Read the earlier part of chapter 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And this joy is the opposite of what Paul calls haughtiness. This is what Paul is warning us about. Haughtiness is when we view ourselves as more worthy than others because of what we have or what we have accomplished. Haughtiness reveals that we do not view God as the good giver of everything because it deludes us to believe falsely that he gave, that, that we gave these good gifts of wealth to ourselves through our own power. And this is exactly what God warns Israel of when they enter the land in Deuteronomy. Be careful. When you enter this land, you have everything you need. Houses that you did not build, fields you did not sow, orchards that you did not plant and tend. When you enter, you'll, you'll be tempted to forget that I am the one who gave you this power to get wealth. Okay. And just as a note, we often think that we're on the bottom end of a sliding scale of what rich people are. Like Rich people are always like Jeff Bezos. Elon Musk, Paul defines what is a rich person in relationship to what he considers to be essential human needs, food and clothing. Paul, if Paul, in Paul's mind, if you have food and clothing, if you have more than that, then you are rich. You have excess to share. That's Paul's, that's Paul's mindset here. So haughtiness, this thing that Paul is warning us from, is the manifestation of turning in on ourselves in self-conceit. I've got all this myself. It's mine. I'm going to make myself happy. Rather, though, rather though, joy is the product of contentment in receiving the good gifts that God has given to us, and he gives us everything to enjoy, and this joy refuses to turn inward, and it resists self-interested decision-making Rather, it presses us into the service of radical generosity that Paul speaks about in verse 18. Out of the enjoyment of God's good gifts, we are to become like him, radically generous gift givers. We are to imitate our God. It says there, they are to do good. Remind them that they are to do good, to be rich in good works. So Paul's moving from general to specific. To be generous, and that, this word would, for generous is a sense of its of material goods, but then also ready to share. And this is a word related to koinonia, to share not only our material goods, but our whole selves with others. So it's not just like what we might have, 
in our bank account, but it's also our very beings, our time, our relationship. We are to be sharing that with others. For when we experience true joy, I mean true joy born out of God's promiscuous generosity, we desire deeply for others to share in that joy. Wouldn't you? We talk about roller coasters like this. Man, you got to go to this place because, man, I went on this ride and it gave me so much joy. It was awesome. I mean, if we really view God and the gifts that he gives us for the kind of contentment and joy that he expects from us, we would be running around telling people, here, here, I want to share with you what I have received, not only in knowledge, but of the good gifts of God. Yet such joy is only possible when we give our allegiance to King Jesus and his coming kingdom and set our hope firmly upon a radically generous and loving Father. And hope set upon God radically reorients and reorders our lives through this joy. And this joy that comes only from God and its practices of radical generosity compound an interest for us, not in this life, but in the life to come, as Paul reminds us there in verse 19. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. What life have you taken hold of? What life have you taken hold of? What life have I taken hold of? Is it the life of the fallen kingdoms of men that are fading away? Or is it the life that is truly life? The life that is found only in King Jesus and his joy-filled kingdom. And if, in closing, I can channel Moses from Deuteronomy 31, choose life, not death. Choose joy, not haughtiness. Choose the kingdom of God and not the dark human kingdoms of this present age. Choose Jesus and not yourself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.